Hi, I'm Pamelia Chia, founder of Singapore Noodles, writer of Wet Market to Table, and your host for the Singapore Noodles podcast, where I will be bringing you honest and insightful dialogue with people who care deeply about Singaporean food. If you'd like to see more content, go to sgpnoodles.com for recipes, video tutorials, and more. And be sure to check out our planner for the new year. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Jaya Seelan is the founder of Jaya Spices at Yishun Wet Market. Years ago, he picked up the dying art of spice mixing from his father, who has been a spiceman for decades. Today, Jaya has a deep knowledge and understanding of spices and is adept at customizing blends for dishes that range from Eurasian thing to Nonya fish curry. Welcome, Jaya. Thanks for joining me today. A pleasure to talk to you. So maybe you can take me back to when you first heard of the craft of spice blending. So. How how do you come across it? Was it through your dad? Yeah, my I think I knew that my dad was working with spices, but there was one day he came back home with like many many colors. Then I asked him like what he did uh, and he said like, "Boy, I make magic." So it was really very funny and really stuck, really stuck to me for until now. After I found out that he mixes mixed spices, right? I wasn't really very um curious in the sense that i didn't really go on to find out more about what he did i knew he mixed spices i found it very cool but i didn't really like go and explore yeah so i was just doing my own thing in school i was um, i was very playful yeah so i didn't really um, have an interest maybe until the age of 19 or 20 yeah after nsg so it's after 20. um so during my weekends right my parents will call me down to work in the shop because they don't have uh, a spare hand in the shop. They don't have workers, right? So they asked me to come and help out. That's when I will see my father in action. That's my first taste. So that was quite late, really. We were talking about maybe the age of 21, 22, when I saw my dad really mix the spices. Then I thought, wow, this one really quite cool. Huh? Maybe I can consider this once I graduate. But it wasn't something that I really, really considered until I really I graduated and I realized that the corporate world might not be cut out for me. Because I, I went to work outside. I was working in the zoo and the bird park as a cop pongs. Mm. Yeah, so I didn't really like the job. It was nice. I like my boss. I like the environment. But I just, I didn't find the drive to wake up every day and go to work until I came to this, the environment I'm in now, right? It's, it's really quite cool. Yeah. Yeah, I find it so interesting because, I mean, you came from the world of academia, right? I mean, you graduated with an honours degree. And then to work in a wet market, it's like a completely different environment. So how was that adaptation process like for you? What people associate with the wet market, right, is it's a place um, where people who don't really study, who, you know, play truant, never make it in life, then they go, they go work in the wet market. I mean, that's a general impression. And stereotypes, right? That's the reason why people form stereotypes. I feel they are true to a certain extent. So if, let's say, you go and like conduct a survey in the web market, right? The people who operate stalls in the web market, um, you will find that their educational backgrounds um, leave a lot to be desired. So maybe they finish like secondary school. Some of them they don't even go to secondary school. They just go to primary school. They stop. It's, uh, I, I got a culture shock when I was in the web market. La. It wasn't easy, but I made it uh, also a thing for me to learn the ways of the web market. So one of the things is learning Malay. 
So Malay is very, very important. It's, a, it's the language of the web market, actually. If you go in, right, um, you can talk English, Chinese. Maybe some people might understand you. Some people might not understand you. But if you talk Malay, right, everybody can understand you. I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, base, yeah, it's just basic Malay. So all you need to do is like, you go there and ask other buyer, right? So it's, how are you? So everybody will know. Like they will just tell you buy it. And instantly, right, immediately you have established a rapport with the vendor or the seller. So if, let's say you want to go home and buy fish, right? Then you just ask other buyer. Okay, good. Then you already have a relationship. <laughs> you Chances are you're going to get a discount on your fish. You know, it's, it's one of those things. A bit of Malay also really helps. But in Melbourne, I guess it's, Different lah. I mean, I yeah. don't know. I don't wet markets in Melbourne. Um, uh, not really wet markets, but they do have like fish markets and things like that. But it's more posh and cleaner, I guess. Like the floors are oh, not. Wet. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So they don't have like. Sometimes you can see like house flies. You don't have that like, It's very sterilized, like. Yeah, it's very sterilized because the way that they they do it is such that it's like a tourist location. Oh, okay. Like one, one or two in, in the whole city of Melbourne. So I feel that it's very, very different from the wet market, you know, and I really miss the wet market because you get to form a very, very close relationship with the vendors because it's not like heaps of people going to that market. It's always the same few aunties, same few uncles. So I was wondering if you saw a lot of young people when you are working at the wet market? Or is it mainly like aunties and uncles? Ah, you're right. Aunties and uncles. So maybe you take the average age. I mean, we haven't conducted a survey. Lah, but what my intuition tells me that's 50, 50 to 55. I think that's the average age. Uh, if you are dealing with old people, right? That means you the way you talk, the way you handle these customers is also very different. Because old people have a specific way of telling you the things that they want. It's a specific way. They are very fragile. You cannot just... Tell them something, you will probably offend them. Uh, so, it's, I mean, we call them boomer mentality, but not everybody have, has have the kind of primitive mentality. What do you mean by fragile? I mean, like, you say that you will hurt them, right? Like, what kind of um, topics would hurt them? They, a lot of them are pro-PAP. So, <laughs> like, for example, uh, elections, uh, the elections you just seen. So, you have to be, you as a millennial, I mean, 90% of millennials are pro-opposition, right? Let's just be honest, lah. Yeah, so you cannot go tell them, wow, workers party lah, wow, Pitam Singh lah. You can't, you can't do that. You have to, <laughs> you have to play along to what they like. Yeah, this is just one example. Lah, yeah. So they are very, very um, sensitive on these kind of issues. And also, uh, millennials are much more racially. I mean, we are much more open to racial issues as compared to them. Especially the Chinese aunties, right? I've agreed with a lot of them because. They will just come to the shop and then automatically assume they can talk Chinese. Yeah. So they will just come and ask, oh, Ni hao ma, chika okay. tosao. That kind of thing. So they will just continue talking in Chinese. I will reply them in English yeah. and they will continue talking in Chinese. Yeah, so it's a very, um, it's very ingrained in them. From a very young age, it's ingrained in them that um, wherever they go, the person there will be able to talk in Chinese and reply yeah. back to them. Yeah. So it's these things that um, I try to adapt. La. So it's one of those things is learning a bit of conversational Chinese. So, because I didn't want to lose my customers. So I made it a point to like go back home and every time I will just like just go to YouTube, watch a couple of videos. It doesn't have to be very intense. Maybe 10 minutes every day. I'll dedicate to like language learning. Mm. Yeah. So Malay and Chinese, that's one couple of things I did. Some of the ways I adapted is... Um, I also make it a point to talk to all the vendors there. 
so it's friend friend lah like don't don't antagonize any of them lah yeah. yeah because if let's say you make like if let's say you have a gripe with any of them right it will it is it's not a good place to be in because these customers who come to your shop they also go to other shops in the same market Hmm. Yeah, so they will. I mean, if people, if people are not happy with you, means then they will start talking talk about you, lah. So we don't want that. You see, we yeah. want people to be like spreading good things about you. So I try to be friends with everybody there, lah. And so far, so good. I mean, everybody in the market is on good terms with me, and vice versa, lah. So it's it's pretty nice. Mm, that's great. You know, like you mentioned about how language is so important in the web market, right? That was one thing that I felt very strongly when I was first going back to the web market to start shopping because I realized that a lot of people were speaking in dialects or Chinese at the web markets and I think I always felt more comfortable with English. Um, and so I felt very shy and I felt very awkward in the web market. But then after that, when I thought about it, I was like, you know, is language really so important in the web market? Because a lot of domestic helpers go to the web markets and they're very familiar with it and they feel very comfortable, but they don't speak a word of Chinese or say Malay. So is the issue really language or do you think there's a different kind of barrier for young people to enter the web markets? Young people, so-called millennials, right? They're very used to comfort. Yeah, so they are. They want things to be very, very convenient, lah. Which is why you see a lot of young people in NTUC, Shengshong, Giant, hypermarkets, lah. Because it's so much easier for them to go into these places, not ask anybody anything, just like do, like just do everything by themselves. Like they just have to look for the items themselves. There's no need for communication, no need for haggling. Um, if you need uh, information on a certain product, Google is there for you. Everything is. Like at the tips, as a, on your fingertips, you see. So there is, I think people are just scared to come out of their comfort zone. They don't understand that in the web market, not only do you get a much richer experience, look like shopping for your products, but you also get fresher products. Like your products themselves is better, much better, because every day, right, is um, vegetables wise, uh, it's fresh greens. Every day is fresh greens. NTUC is not that. They will fresh greens, yes, but whatever they cannot sell, right? They will repackage it. They will just make sure it looks shiny again. They'll put a new label on it, then they'll sell it the next day. But I mean, people won't realize it now because it's NTUC, right? They associate NTUC with freshness, with convenience, accessibility. So when you do, when you make all these associations, it's very difficult to come out of this comfort zone and go to the web market. I think for them, it's really a hassle to wake up in the morning, like 7, 8 a.m. Nowadays, if you wake up at 7, 8 a.m., uh, there's already a queue outside the market. And you have to queue up. Now it's even worse. Weekends, I need to be queued up for like 20, 30 minutes. I don't think young people, they'll make that kind of effort. Uh. But I really do encourage them, actually. Yeah, but I mean, if young people stop going to the wet markets or are intimidated by it or feel that wet markets are dirty or like smelly, then how can we expect wet markets to continue, you know, in the future? Um, I don't think, to be really honest, I don't think wet markets can continue. What Melbourne did, right? They just, um, I, I do not know whether they had wet markets in the past. Um, even if they did, they probably reappropriated the entire thing to make it look modern. So I think what will happen now is um, maybe in a 10, 20 years time, wet markets will, be, will become slowly a thing of the past. And I think they will just combine with hypermarkets, all hypermarkets will uh, kind of like uh, recalibrate themselves to have maybe a section of their own stores, 
looking like a wet market. So that's what people do now, lah. As in, even if you're modern, right? They want to retain the antique, rustic <laughs> charm of the past, right? Then they go and like just fix a certain section of the shop or store, and then make it look like a remnant of the past. And then they call it like, oh, I want to preserve my heritage, lah. You know, <laughs> that's what happen in the future, lah. I feel. Actually, I see the opposite happening. I see a lot of shops that have a very modern look to appeal mm-hmm. to younger customers. So, do you see that happening? Okay, I I've also incorporated some modern elements in my shop. Mm. This is my aim. I want to have a balance of both charms of a rustic provision shop and also the quips and the convenience of a modern minimart. We want a balance. We don't want it to be so modern that people who come into the shop, right? Have no idea of what it was to buy things in the past. Now, if you come to my shop, right, the first thing you will see at the side, right, at the left side, right, is my spice store. So immediately they are hit with like waves of like nostalgia. Right? They are slowly getting reminded of their past, and they they get reminded of the times they went to the wet market maybe 20, 30 years back. That's what I want. But the moment you go in, right, wow, there's aircon in the shop. If let's say you want to pay by net, there's still an option for that. So it's um it has a lot of those elements like a mixture of convenience of payment, uh being comfortable by shopping where you are. But there's also like you can haggle with me, you can you can choose to you know negotiate on price, that's possible. Because end of the day we're not we are manually entering our prices. We don't have a POS yet. We try our best to keep it uh, both modern and traditional at the same time. And sometimes I find it a struggle. Uh, there are times where I was thinking, I would think to myself, okay, why not we just stick to like entirely traditional? Because I'm a very big fan of uh, preserving like the olden heritage. So I, I was at a point of time I was thinking, okay, I think we don't install aircon at all. I think next machine, so we don't need lah. I mean, everything can be done like it was in the olden days. But I think we'll end up losing a lot of customers, especially like you mentioned, right, the younger girl. Some of them who come by, right, they they cannot. Try as they might, they cannot appreciate the value of having or mixing spices on the spot. Mm. They just ask, oh, why not I just buy Baba's curry powder? Yeah, so they, I, I need to really go and explain to them. So some people, they listen to me, they'll be like, oh, okay, I think I'll try your curry powder. Some people, yeah, they are quite nonchalant about it. Mm. So you talked a lot about the rustic charm of a uh, wet market, right? I think for me, what I love about the wet markets is that it is one of the only places in Singapore that remain unmanicured. You know, I mean, like Singapore is so manicured and like everything is so neat and so organized. But I love going to places like Little India, you know, like wet markets because you can see things like scattered about, like in a very organic and beautiful way, you know. Mm -hmm. If I were a photographer, I would think that the wet market is super photogenic. But you know, if it becomes like very very clean very organized very like social media friendly then it becomes just another like supermarket or just another like jason's or cold storage right that's why a lot of photographers who come to my shop right wow they have a feel day because they are so happy to there's so many colors it's just very vibrant the entire thing is very vibrant i mean we do organize our things properly we just make sure it's all stacked and everything but after a very hectic day of business and everything is all over the place right? so you think you see like uh, nuts and seeds scattered all over the floor. You see, like leaves just straight all over the floor. It's it's a mess, lah. It's a mess. But that's what people who from the olden days, right? Especially those older generation, they really 
not not only do they don't mind, they really appreciate all this. They're like, oh, I come in, they see the wet market messy or what, they're very happy. They're like, wow, I'm in the right place. Here, surely got business. I love it. It's like, you know, when I first went back to Singapore, the next day when I get up, the first thing I do in the morning is go to a wet market because I love it so much. You know, it's beautiful <laughs> to me. Which one, which one do you go to? Which one do you go to? I've been living in Marymount my whole life. So when I was a kid, I grew up next to the Lakeview Market. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. No, I'm not. Uh, a lot of people call it La Pasa because it was so big. Um, oh, okay, okay, okay. okay. So it's very near Marymount MRT. You know, in front of okay. Marymount MRT, there's a huge field. So it was demolished when I was nine. And the market got shifted to Shunfu, where it is now. But okay. now Shunfu market is super small compared to what it, what it was. So you're situated at Ishun, right? Yeah. It's, it so happens, right, that this Yishun market is one of the newer ones, actually. Compared to maybe Chongpang, Masling, all these markets, right, they will probably be reminiscent of the old, the La Baza, your Marymount market. Because they are very old. They built, like, 40, 50 years ago. And like you said, right, they are unmanicured. Um, until a week ago, the government announced that they were going to build Chongpang City. They're going to demolish Chongpang again. So it's going to be like a okay, like North Point City is now. Right? You know North Point City, right? Mm. Yeah. So it's uh it's supposed to be like houses. Then there's a shopping mall beside it. So it's integrated like everything, like banking, everything is in one. So you don't have to get out of it there to go anywhere else. You can just live and stay and shop in North Point City. You can have all your basic needs satisfied there. Yeah, so that's what the government is trying to do, like, integrated hubs like, everywhere. So what we are going to lose now is the charm of Chompa Market because all those small units, all those small stalls that are operating there, I mean, they are obviously going to compensate them. Like. Obviously, they are not going to run out of business, run out of money. That's not going to happen. But you're going to lose a lot of businesses there like, and a lot of um, people who go there for the entire wet market feeling, right? They're going to lose out. There are only a few very vibrant markets. Vibrant meaning uh, the feeling, you go inside a market, you're feeling, oh, I'm in Singapore, I'm in mean, the kampung. Right? Yeah, that kind of feeling, right? You really get it nowadays. Yeah, it's only a very, very few markets that still hold on to that kind of very specific spirit uh, feeling. And why, why is that? The, the smell, the noise. Um, wet markets are significantly less noisy now. Even my market, right, compared to five, six years ago, is less noisy now because uh, the, the government makes a lot of noise about, okay, they make a lot of, uh, they have a lot of restrictions on You cannot make noise after a certain hour. La. You cannot make noise during this kind of period. La. If let's say you cannot raise your voice above a certain decibel, la, a lot of rubbish. La, really. So it's... Like wet market means wet market, man. People talk, people shout, people. I mean, that's the whole essence of wet market, right? You know, to be honest, like one of my favorite noises in the morning, um, in the market, is when you go in the early morning, and it just feels very calm and serene and still. You just hear the sounds of like Chinese radio. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah a okay, lot but of it's really early though. Yeah. It's really early. It's about 5:36 a.m. I love that. That's what I really miss, you know, going into the wet market, hearing the sound of the Chinese radio, and then you see like flowers in pails. That's really beautiful. And then you smell the smell of fresh tofu and bean sprouts. Oh my God. Wow. Awesome, isn't it? Yeah. I love it. I love it. Also, yeah. I feel so sad that all this might 
might fade away, you know, or might be gone in maybe 20, 30 years time? Yeah, it's definitely something that will be gone. I mean, it's, there's no use denying that. I mean, we can hold on to it as long as possible, but it's dying and no one can really stop it from dying off. It's just the way we have evolved, I guess, as Singaporeans. And Singapore is going towards like higher buildings, bigger, more commercialized. Like everything is very commercialized, right? Yeah. yeah, so wet markets have no place in that kind of world, unfortunately, I feel. Yeah, I know. It's very sad. But, you know, I feel very heartened that someone like you who understands the power of social media, the power of technology, and who also has the heart for this kind of tradition and these kind of old spaces can bring something unique and somehow preserve that kind of spirit that we love. So maybe you can tell me a little bit more about your craft because I'm super interested. I know you, you talked a little bit about how... Uh, a lot of youngsters don't understand the value of mixing spices a la minute. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Like what is so special about mixing spices spontaneously? Yeah, I'd just like to ask you something. So mm. have you, um, do you have a first-hand experience with uh, spice making? I own a pretty, you know, which is an Indian um, spice grinder. So, oh, yeah, okay, okay, you have the blender. Okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. Wet, it's, a wet, it's a wet mixer, right? I don't know. I don't know if it's a wet or, or dry mixer, but you know, when I was working at Candle Nut, we made a lot of rumpas and things like that. So oh, okay. I realized that that blender was super good, and I went to buy myself one from Little India, and it's been with me for like a few years, and I brought it to Australia with me. And so when I make things like um, Nonia glutinous rice dumplings, you know, the nonya tang, right? The okay. smell of ground, freshly ground coriander is really, really important for that dish. And so that I always grind myself. I always toast and grind myself. Yeah, so yeah, that's, that's one. So you have, you have first-hand experience. La. So a lot of people our age, right? Okay, I don't know. How old are you? Sorry. Uh, I am 28 going on 29 this year. Oh, okay. So, um, so people, okay, like I'm slightly older than you, but I think we can, we can be in the same age group, right? Yeah. yeah. Our, the people our age, right, I think it's very, very rare for them to know a basic thing like grinding your own spices. People our age don't even know that coriander powder comes from coriander seeds. So, it's really a big step for them. When I first learned, I was also like every other young person in the market. I do not know what was happening. So, I, I took a long time to get the... To learn the ropes for everything. So um, I did a lot of reading. So my, my dad will teach me one by one everything. So the first thing that we do is obviously chicken curry. I think Chinese people are very cute. They come to the market, right? They want to they want to learn how to make curry, right? The first thing they ask is chicken curry. Because a lot of people they don't know anything else. They only know chicken curry and fish curry. They do not know other dishes like asam pedas, mee soto, mee rebus. There's so many other things, right? But the first thing they'll ask is always chicken curry. I learned chicken curry first. And then I moved on to other things. I will do some work in the kitchen also. Like, so, for example, I want to perfect chicken curry, right? So I'll bring like five different blends. Then I'll label each one like one, two, three, four, five. I will just cook a batch and then I'll just divide it into like five parts. I'll put like a specific portion in each one and then I will see how it turns out. Those successful blends, I'll note it down. I will think like how to make it even better. Now we have a lot of very unorthodox requests also. Have you people ask for like Sri Lankan curry, Jaffna blend, people ask for Dansak masala, 
People ask for kuzi, bakso, very Indonesian influenced dishes. Hmm. Yeah, so um, I don't immediately tell them no. If I don't know how to make the dish, the, the, the recipe, right? I'll just tell them I don't have the blend for now, but it will spark the interest in me. I'll go back home, I'll read it. And um, so it's a three-step process. La. I'll go home, I will read about the recipe. That's one. Secondly, I will experiment. That's two. Then three, I will make sure that it resonates with the person first. So I, the person who asks for the recipe, I make sure I give the, I give the recipe to them. Um, make sure they try first. If everything is okay, then I will sell it. So that's how a lot of my products came to the market. Like Eurasian thing all is customer request. We didn't have it initially. Yeah. That's amazing. But I find, I find it very tricky, you know, when developing such things where, say, chicken curry, it's something that all ethnicities in Singapore embrace, right? Everyone has their own version. So it's very, very hard to standardize like one blend for chicken curry. Yes, it's true. Which is why people come to me, which is why people love the customizability, the versatility of spices. Because if let's say uh, you want your curry not so strong, right? So Chinese people, they don't, they put a lot of coconut milk into the curry. Like, I hate it. I, mean, I don't know why they do it because it drowns out the, the, the taste of all the spices. But just the way it is, la, they love the coconut milk. Mm. So I just tone down the spices. I won't put so much uh, fennel, especially the stronger ones like turmeric all. I won't put it at all. I will completely not put it in my curry. That's Chinese style. For Indian style, obviously, Indian, Malays, I'll put in more spicier, savory elements. I'll add like garam masala, I'll add uh, hot chili powder. Chinese people are also more inclined towards candlenuts, bokras. Uh, mm. They want more uh, a nuttier texture to the curry, right? So I put more bokra. Sometimes people ask for cashew powder, I also put. So now, right now, I, all my regular customers, right? I kind of know what they want. So no one chicken curry is ever the same, I feel. For me, right? Uh, I will customize it according to the person. I see the person's face. I know whether they want it spicy, I know they want, whether they want it like Indian style, Malay style. Some people, they vegetarians especially, right? Chinese, Buddhist vegetarians, I think. Some people cannot take garlic. I think they cannot take yes. onions and garlic. Yes. Wrong. Yeah. So if let's say you don't put onion and garlic at all, uh, I, don't have, I don't have much to play with. Like, I already put like coriander paste. I put like, I put, like uh, lemongrass. I try to yeah. compensate for the taste. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really amazing, especially your knowledge on the different ethnic groups of flavor palette. You know, like you mentioned how like coriander, cumin and fennel is really predominant in Indian cooking, right? I feel like every race has their own special spice mix. Like when I started cooking more Eurasian dishes this year, I realized that they use a lot of like warming kind of Christmassy spices. Like nutmeg, cinnamon, spice, clove. Very sweet undertones in their nutmeg, cinnamons are lighter. Their their spice uh, profile, right? The flavor profile is very is very light compared to the heaviness, the very down to earth cumin, stiness. Those are the stronger ones which really bring the flavor yeah. down. Well, I really wish that I was in Singapore right now so I can visit your store because, <laughs> like right now in Melbourne, right? Um, because I live in the countryside. So when I go to the supermarket, there is only one kind of curry powder, and that's Keens. I'm not sure if you know Keens. No, I don't know. Well, it's it's like super generic, and when I use that in my say curry puff or chicken curry, oh my god, it tastes. I wouldn't say that it tastes bad, but it's like just it doesn't taste that authentic. 
you know, to that kind of flavor that I've been accustomed to eating when I was growing up. Baba's all these dishes, mass produce, they add flour, preservative, salt, MSG. It's so easy to just take a product off the shelf and then use it in your cooking. Like what you mentioned, right? Teens, right? If you, let's say, someone who is not accustomed to cooking every day, they're not exposed to spices on a daily basis, right? They will take kins, they'll cook, and then they say, wow, damn good. They don't know the subtleties of um, uh, grinding coriander seeds when it's roasted as opposed to not roasted. They don't know um, how it is like to make kurma from scratch. If you add the cashew nut paste inside, they don't know all this. So when people come to the shop, right, um, no matter how busy I am, I make it a point, especially young people, I make it a point to explain to them from scratch how we do all these things. Um, some people, they have no idea how to cook. I'm actually very, very more than happy to explain to them from scratch, like how you saute the spices, when you add in the water, how much you coconut milk to put, what kind of style you're cooking, uh, how many people you're cooking for, how spicy you want. I want them to know that if let's say if they have any questions about cooking or spice making or anything, right? There is a place to go, la, as in don't have to be shy about it. La. So right now you're the only one doing the spice blending at your shop? Ah, uh, yes. I mean, my one of my workers, they, he knows the basics, like chicken, chicken curry, fish curry. So when I'm not around, right, you can still do the basic dry blends. Mm. But I take care of all the wet blends and uh, the majority of the dry blends. La. The, the more unorthodox ones, only I know how to do. Like Eurasian thing, Nunya fish curry. Mm. But from what I understand, I mean, it's uh, basically memorizing the different spice combinations right and customizing it to the customer's preference so isn't it as straightforward as like say printing out a kind of recipe for each blend and like getting your workers or your apprentice to kind of follow that yeah it could be as straightforward as that but after a while i'll start to lose customers i think because right um the one thing they won't get right is uh, versatility Okay, like for example, uh, I can tell you like Thai green curry, right? The blend uh, is very simple one, very simple. You just put coriander powder, you just put a little bit of white pepper, a dash of turmeric, you put the candle nuts, you're done. Your blend is done, right? Anybody can do it. Uh. You don't have to have like a spice man dedicated to spice blends to come up with the mix. Yeah. But what happens if the person is like coming from another country altogether? Like let's say they're coming from Thailand, right? Or they know their dish very well, right? So you must be very knowledgeable. You cannot go to a Thai person and tell them, okay, this is a spice blend. Then they ask you uh, what else to add, right? Then you cannot be like, um, I'm not too sure. Like, just look up the recipe on the internet. Like. You cannot be like that. So you have to be knowledgeable about every single dish that you're trying to. That's why I make it a point to Every time I come back home, right? I just randomly read recipes. Even those which are, have not been um, asked by customers at all, right? I just got them down. You come in useful maybe in the future. So I... I make it a point to memorize like most recipes. Lah. And also, right, spices, they have 15 different types of categories that you can measure them by. So, for example, I just list them, list a few, lah, okay? Uh, bitterness, floral scent, earthiness. Earthiness is this chemical called geosmin. When you smell a potato, yam, all these are very earthy smells. And then uh, woody, so you have savory, spicy, hot, you have herbaceous, various spices have different, all these categories, they have all these categories, but have different levels of each category. So for example, fennel, right, has very nice floral scent. It's also quite sweet. 
um, it has very um, licorice-like undertone, so it's, it can be considered quite savory as well. Some people might even consider it quite pungent. So it's really, off the bat really, it's really satisfying like 4 or 5 out of the 15 categories. Really. So when I talk about spices, right, and I get my workers to mix the spice blends, can mix one, no problem. Mm. But they won't get the nuance that I am trying to put across to the customers. When I talk about spices, right, I'm also very passionate. My workers don't have that, you see. They will just, it's, a, it's very robotic for them. They will just follow the spice blend, they'll do it, they'll pass the customers. Yes. The spice blend, the spice blend will be very good lah because it's the recipe, right? Yeah. It's a formula. You see, if you follow the formula to the exact teaspoon, you are going, you are bound to replicate the kind of taste. But what they won't get is nuance lah. They won't get the same uh, knowledge that I will share with them. They won't get the same versatility that I can customize the spice powders for them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The way that you describe spices is like a sommelier, man. When I go to the shop, the first thing I do, right, the first thing I do, even before I have my breakfast, is I smell all my spices. So that's when I know like I'm, I'm back where I belong, you see. It, I, I guess it's a good thing. The passion that I have for this uh, particular art is something I feel few people will be able to replicate. La. And it's something I'm very grateful for. I think in Singapore, having a passion and pursuing, basically having a job that you like, working in a job that you like, right, is very rare. I feel like my sample size is also pretty small. But amongst my friends, I think I'm the happiest. I work the longest hours, but compared to them, I think I'm the happiest. Like, in How do you know of, that you're the happiest? I mean, like, what kind of metric do you use to measure happiness? Um, I don't ever complain about my work. Even if I do, it's very minor stuff. It's maybe like a... This, like a uh, An auntie who haggles too much. <laughs> Yeah, correct. Oh, sometimes all they get on my nerves eh. and <laughs> this Chinese auntie all uh, 50 cent and 50 cent item, uh, they want to pay 50 cent, they ask for 20 cent and eh. how like that? <laughs> yeah, then I we can't piss them off as so. well. Some of these Chinese aunties are uh, they are like figureheads, you know, in the market. So if you piss them off, right, they will tell stories about you to like the other aunties and it spreads like a virus, even worse than COVID. So yeah, if you don't know how to take the kind of risk. No, sometimes they're very, they're very cunning. They will ask you for 50 cents discount. Then they'll be like, ha ha ha, I'm just joking, don't worry. Ha ha ha, don't worry. It's not that you use the word cunning. <laughs> it's hilarious. It is. I, but I feel that that is the true anti-level uh, wet market shopper. You know what I mean? Because when I first went to wet markets, right, I would be very shy and I'll be like, oh, can I just get this? Can I get that? I won't mm-hmm. haggle. And then yeah. I see the, the auntie at the same store. She'll be like, oh, you know, this chicken, I want you to cut it in this way, remove all the bone for me. And it's like the exact same price. Yeah, yeah, they, they are very experienced. I mean, if you really want value for money, right, just follow one Chinese auntie around the shop. Even after six years of experience, I cannot haggle like them. I'll feel shy. Like, at the end of the day, right, you are haggling with people who are trying to make a living. Mm. Um, you also must know uh, where you, exactly you're haggling. If you haggle at a fish shop, right, it's different from haggling at a, like a grocery shop. Because at the grocery shop, the profit margins are a lot thinner. You're talking about like 15, 20%. Mm. As opposed to like fish, poultry, we are looking at 30-40% right. Give you enough buffer for them to reduce the margin. So like they, the first thing they tell you is $35. Then you talk to them nicely then you're like, then they're like, okay, you know what? 
girl, you talk very nicely to me, I give you $30. Lah. So the next time, the next time, right, you go back to them, right? You go back to them. So they already know that they have established a kind of relationship with you. And you're, you're gonna, if you have a relationship with them, you trust them, right? Mm. You're not gonna argue with them. You're not gonna say, hey, that time you give me $35 in here, why is it suddenly $40? Then they just tell you, oh, well, girl, I think you come back to me, so I just give you $35. I give you the same price as last time. So it's a very common uh, marketing tactic. It's, it's, um, it's very important to form a close relationship with the vendors. Also. Yeah. Another thing that I realized that you're doing on your socials is that you are sharing about different festivals in Singapore. Like, for example, I saw your post on Hari Raya and then you, you shared that you had coconut leaves in the shop to make ketupat and things like that. So how did that idea come about? It's what we stand for, you see. Like, in preserving these spice setups, these spice art form, preserving the kampong spirit, we also want to commemorate all these the festivities that happen around us, you see. It's, it's really a beautiful thing. Right? I think Singaporeans really don't appreciate what they have. We are um, like 700 square kilometers. We are such a small space. Yeah? And so many things going on in this small space. Right? We are really gifted. We are really, really gifted to have these kind of uh, things going on around us. So we're not putting in enough effort to understand the various uh, racial practices, customs, uh, tastes why people do certain things. It's ingrained in me to just learn something about everything that goes around me. If I don't understand anything, and Google is so close to us, anything is just Google lah. I won't hurt you, right? Just take a few seconds to go Google and Google tells you everything. Uh, I'm very happy that we got to speak today. I learned so much from you and I would love to visit you when I'm back in Singapore after this whole COVID thing is over. Sure, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.